Welcome back, Crack fans. As always, I'm your host, Dalton Thieneman. Just a reminder, if you haven't already, go check out the Great Shop podcast. Alex Gruskin, Max Rothman, and Max Fliegner have a real treat for you coming every Wednesday. So go subscribe and rate their podcast on iTunes. We also have an ongoing series called The Tennis Tribune that we released a couple weeks ago where elite-level players and coaches provide an insight look to their daily routine and most recently, we had Cracked Rackets' own and Dartmouth senior Max Fliegner, uh, former UNC standout Jack Murray, and former Louisville star Alex Gornett, and they all give an inside scoop and inside look into their schedule and, and challenges and what to expect from um, an elite-level tennis player's schedule. So check that out. We are also running the Next Gen American series where our very own Alex Gruskin is covering 10 up-and-coming players over a 10-week span. And so far, he looked into Noah Rubin and Ernesto Escobedo. Uh, we also have Jared Donaldson dropping this week. So go check that out and go check out our, our Cracked Racket store where we just released our new t-shirt at CrackedRackets.com to support the podcast. But for now, on this edition of the Cracked Interviews, former USC assistant coach and current ATP pro Deaton Bauman joins the pod. Deaton takes us through his illustrious junior career, choosing USC, the transition from player to coach, and his recent future schedule. I really think you guys are going to enjoy this one, Cracked fans, but... Uh, Deaton has really bounced back after taking some time off from the game, and he's an extremely personable and vivacious guy. So, enjoy my conversation with Deaton. Crack fans, we're really excited to have Deaton on tonight. Deaton, thank you so much for coming on. No, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So uh, we'll get it started here. Tell us a little bit about yourself, how you originally got into the game. Uh, it's uh, actually kind of an interesting story. Um, my So my dad had, uh, obviously it was like my half-sister, so he got my half-sister involved in tennis. And I always kind of wander the courts when he would be working with her. Or she had like a lesson with someone. I was just kind of wander the courts. I didn't really ever show any interest in tennis. It was just more of like, oh, it was amusing to see a tennis ball flying around. I tried to catch it or something like that. And uh, but when I was like five, five and a half, I kind of took an interest in it. I would go, we were living in an apartment complex and there was like an alleyway that had like these garage doors that were like kind of big. And 
I would take a racket. I would just go slap the ball against the garage, like for the first six, seven months that I was playing. Like, I didn't know what I was doing. I had to slap the ball, try to get as many in, in a row as I could. And, um, you know, my dad saw that I was interested in it. He really wasn't getting the time of day because he was so busy with my sister. But my mom was like, hey, you know what? Like, he really seems to like tennis. He keeps asking for, you know, to go out and hit with you or whatever. So my dad finally got me, you know, on the court. And I kind of showed right away kind of a, an eye for tennis or, a, you know, a feel for it and kind of just progressed from there. So was it one of those stories where you were hitting on the garage so much the neighbors were complaining because you were smack of the garage, like you were just that 100 percent. No, I would go out there like early mornings, like before, like you know, kindergarten in the first grade. I would go out there, you know, like you know, school usually started like around eight, so I get out there around six forty-five, seven, and go hit. And most people were still like asleep, you know, most of them, and they were like get pissed. And I think one time I broke a, I broke a window. I tried hit a lob <laughs> up onto the apartment building, and the lob was a little too hard, and it, like went through the window and. You know, we obviously had a problem with the neighbors at that point. You know, obviously they understood I was, you know, a five-year-old kid with no control. But, uh, yeah, it was definitely, <laughs> definitely like the cliche story about that. That was definitely uh, accurate for my time there, yeah. <laughs> but your lob's probably better for it today, right? <laughs> uh, it's, yeah, it's gotten a little better. It's still, if it's, I feel like it's still a little too hard, which happens quite often. But uh, I've gotten, you know, a little more feel now over the course of the last 15, 16 years. <laughs> so how did it progress from there? Like, was there a tournament win? Was was there a moment in time where you're like, wow, I, I know for sure that I can play this game at a pretty elite level? Well, it's actually funny. Um, time there was a, like a little clinic slash, like not academy, but kind of a clinic that Rance Brown, the uh, associate head coach at East Little Women's Tennis, kind of ran. And, and my dad, obviously, would go down there to like, you know, talk to him about tennis and kind of have my sister work with him a little bit. And I would go there like quite often when I was like six, seven years old. And immediately Rance kind of took an interest in me and was like, wow, this kid's actually got, like, you know, he's got a great hand-eye coordination. He hits the ball really clean for his age. You know, he has a good technique. And by the time I was around eight, I started having really good results, like in the 10s in Southern California, which at the time, you know, in USTA tennis, it's kind of changed a lot since, you know, obviously I was younger. But at the time, you know, open and sectional events, like we were called designated, so they were really obviously important and really, like, you know, they were considered, you know, pretty big events for me to play. And I started having like good runs, you know, quarters, semis of these events against guys that were a year two older than me. And at that point, I kind of sort of realized like, you know, I was pretty good. And people started recognizing like his kids, you know, sharp. He's pretty raw, but you know, he's got a potential future. And when I was 10 years old, I actually won a 16th open event in Southern California against kids that were literally 15, 16. Like they were about to age out to go to the 18th. And, and here I am, 10 years old, maybe 90 pounds tripping wet, maybe. And, you know, but I was winning matches through the world and they weren't necessarily weren't like that great, but it was just, you know, they had experience, they had, they had size, they had, you know, basically just like they were twice the size as me and I was still able to beat them. And at that point I was like, okay, I, you know, I think I'm pretty good. I was probably a little cockier than I should have been, but, uh, you know, I was, <laughs> but it worked. Showing, it worked. Yeah. I was show I was showing potential and I kind of sort of believed myself that I could maybe do something decent in the sport. Not obviously incredible, but I thought I could, you know, be a decent tennis player. And any SoCal tournament to be a 10 year old to go in in a 16s open to pull that out, that's impressive to say the least. It doesn't matter what level that tournament was, but it sounds like you've always had that fearless attitude. Where, where did you get that? Uh, honestly, you know, so I think a lot of it is hereditary in a sense. Like I always was trying to challenge myself and kind of, you know, I always wanted to, you know, cause I, and my sister kind of got a lot of attention when I was younger. Even when I started playing tennis, my sister was still playing. And so I was always trying to kind of outdo her. And then, you know, also too, you know, you kind of get like this kind of like, not entitlement, but you're like, you know, hey, I want to really prove, you know, everyone wrong. You know, I want to prove my dad wrong. Or prove my, you know, I want to kind of prove everyone wrong. And 
I think that was hereditary. And my dad also too, he, when he was younger, he was a, a former like MMA trainer slash like boxer. And so he kind of instilled a lot of that in me as well at a young age, you know, never give up, always compete, you know, compete to the last point. And I think, you know, that was definitely, you know, an influence, but, you know, I think a lot of it, I mean, I think that's a lot of players, a lot of it's hereditary, a lot of it's just kind of inherent, you know, in, in a way you kind of just go out there and you, you compete and you battle and, I mean, I always enjoyed it. Win or lose, I always enjoyed, you know, battling in the perfect set or, you know, winning it. Or if I lost it, it was like, hey, next I'm going to win that one. And I don't know, I just feel like it was always somewhat natural, you know, for me, at least. How much older was your sister? It sounds like you were always playing, competing with people that were years ahead of you. Yeah, she's um, she's three and a half years older than I am. And, okay. Um, she actually was having some really solid results in the uh, 10s and 12s out there in Southern California. She was like top five in each one at a very, very early age too. She was top five in the 10s when she was eight. She was top five in the 12s when she was 10. So she was already showing, you know, a lot of, you know, promise per se. I mean, you can't really put that as much stock on a kid that young, but you know, there's signs that shows like, Hey, this, this guy, you know, this boy or girl can be, you know, really good at some point. And for me, I kind of always had like that chip on my shoulder in a sense, but I always wanted to kind of outdo, you know, my, my peers and also people that are older than me. And, so I think it was almost like kind of like I was wanting to compete with her, you know, as well, trying to outdo her, you know, because everyone kind of knew in Southern Cal, they always knew my sister. They always talked about, oh, yeah, you're good, but your sister was really good. She had, you know, she quit tennis around the age of like 12. And so it was kind of always like in her shadow. So I think it was always like trying to fight to get out of it. And once I started making my name for myself in SoCal, it was like, okay, like I'm doing something, you know, special in a sense of my own head, at least. Maybe not to everyone else. But in my head, I thought it was doing something extremely special. So, so switching gears a little bit, talk us through your summer schedule this year. I know you've played plenty of futures. You've been traveling all over the place. Uh, maybe take us back to like June or so. I think you played the Winston-Salem uh, future, and that was kind of the start to your summer, maybe. Yeah. Um, so I started off, I, so I finished at USC uh, coaching with the team uh, like middle of May, right after Athens. So I went back home. I trained for three weeks out in Carson with, uh, with USDA with David Nank and Taylor Fritz. Um, and I you know, wasn't really doing any training. I was just literally hitting, you know, I would train, you know, maybe once a week. So I wasn't really sure how my body would react. So I was like, okay, I want to be at least sharp for the practice sessions this year, you know, with Taylor or anyone else who was there. And so I went to Winston-Salem. Uh, I got there and I was fortunate enough to actually have a ranking still at the time that I signed up for both the Winston-Salem and the following week, the tournament in Kelowna, Canada. So I got in the main draw of uh, both those events. Started off and went to Salem. I had a good first round against a kid, uh, Harry Adams, who played at Texas A&M. And then I lost to Austin Krychek, uh the following day, uh, five and four, or four and five. One of the, I don't remember the exact score, but um, that was kind of the way the start of the summer. And I was, you know, kind of just happy. And you know, I went out there with very low expectations. I was like, if I could just win a few games a set <laughs> with how long I've been out, I'd be happy with that. But obviously to get a, you know, a win after almost a year of not playing competitively, I was you know, obviously very, you know, pleased with that result. And then competing against a guy, you know, who was just top under, you know, a year and a half ago, like Brad Trick and competing against him and actually having chances in both sets to, you know, maybe win one, you know, win both of them. It was, I was happy with that result. And so then I continued on with the Kelowna the following week. And, um, I made semis there. I beat Philip Best, who recently retired, but he was like the highest center in the world. I played Marcus Giron, who won in CAs, uh, from out of UCLA, uh, three, I think it was like three years ago. I won that. Well, like the best match I played all summer. I just, I served well. I played well, competed well. And then I played Philip Polivo in the semis. And unfortunately, I pulled my back muscle at the end of the first set. And, even though I competed and finished the match, I was in no position to win. I kind of just stuck around hoping that he would maybe 
you know, top of a few, top of a few errors or, you know, give me a few three points. But obviously a season better like himself, he, he didn't do that like I expected or hoped to. And, uh, yeah, I just progressed from there. Talk us through the mental approach when you go in, you know, playing somebody at that level. Is there anything that, especially if you're not playing a lot of tennis um, competitively, and, and I know you're trying to stay uh, fresh with the, the practice sessions and hitting with Taylor and that kind of thing, but it's a whole different mental approach going into the tournaments and to the competitive arena. Uh, what was your mental approach going into the summer starting at uh, Winston-Salem and then you know going on to Canada and further on? Uh, I think it was, honestly, for me, I had, I mean, my mental approach was, let's see how well I can compete. You know, those first two tournaments back, like, I, I planned on doing a, a train, a training block in Orlando, Florida, at the USDA uh, National Campus, uh, following Kelowna. And so, I didn't, I wasn't even planning on playing those two events at, right at first. I was like, you know what, let me go there and let me just see how I compete. Let me just see how... I do under pressure per se, because I haven't done it in over a year. I mean, I, I played in Japan last summer. Uh, I think it was like last week of May or early the first week of June, and I made semis there. But I went to Houston later on in the year in October before I took my break and started coaching at USC. And so I really had no matches. I mean, for legitimately for a year, why I, com- I played competitively, especially in singles. And I kind of went in there with a, you know very you know low expectations in the sense of like you know let's see how high I can compete and see where I'm at level wise. And, you know, I know it's hitting the ball while I was, you know, playing stuff to Taylor. I was competing really well with those. And you know, obviously you don't put that much stock in practice. I was like, hey, you know, if I can take a set or two off of, you know, a guy who's top hunter right now, you know, maybe I can try to translate that and bring it over to, you know, a match, you know, a real match. And so I think it was just, you know, my, for me, it was like, how well can I compete and kind of move forward from there and see how the body responds to, to back to back weeks, traveling, playing matches. And, you know, obviously, you know, I pulled the back in the, uh, for the Palivo, but, for those two weeks, you know, I felt, I felt sharp and I was like, okay, kind of gave me like a little, kind of like a breath of fresh air going, okay, hey, I can, I'm, I'm still the same player I was, you know, I just have to sharpen everything up and polish everything up, you know, during, the, you know, when I go actually do a training block. And, and talk us through, and this is going to be switching gears a bit, but talk us through, you know, playing at a high level, at the highest level. And then that transition from being a player to coach. I mean, is that a completely different dynamic? Is there, um, something like a switch in your brain that you have to switch back and forth when you're coaching and then on the playing side or, uh, um, in a sense there was, um, you know, for me, obviously anyone that knows me, I'm a very, I can be very emotional on court. You know, I can, you know, say some pretty sarcastic things about myself or about the match or, you know, you know, whatever, um, during a match. But I think, the, the biggest transition I noticed was having to kind of keep, stay calm and keep a straight face with my players out there on court because they're the ones already struggling, you know, throughout the match. If they're, if they're losing or they're in a very, you know, you know, hard, you know, type of, you know, hard match at the point, you know, at that point. So for me, it was a matter of just being that stoic, you know, example kind of for them and kind of like someone they could look to at any given time and knowing that I had absolute confidence no matter what the score was in the match, no matter how the match was kind of, you know, playing out. And for me, I, that was kind of the biggest transition because, in, you know, in, in my in the, my own matches, I can kind of be a little more flamboyant, a little bit more expressive. But you know, when you're, as a coach, I had to be more stone faced. You know, what I mean, I obviously encourage them, you know, and obviously have show that I had confidence in the routes, what the score was, or how the match was going. But also to be like that rock for them emotionally. You know, so they, they always knew that I was believing that no matter what. You know, even though a match day I might not be able to believe in myself sometimes during some, you know, back and forth matches or some, you know, hard competitive, you know, you know, events, whatever, it was 
I think that was kind of the biggest difference for me in a sense. And last year was your first year coaching, correct? Yeah, last year was my, my first year coaching <laughs> at 20 years old. <laughs> I know. So yeah, is that is that weird for you? Like you're, you're 20 years old. Um, you know, you were what? Like you were definitely top five in the country in juniors coming up. Uh, you get yeah. recruited by UC, USC. Talk us through that and and the the whole situation there. Um, well, you know, at, at like 13, 14, 15, there's always a talk of, you know, becoming a pro, you know, right out, you know, don't go to school, go pro. And obviously a lot of guys that were a few years ahead of me had already committed to go to school and they were already planning on going. I was, you know, at the time kind of indecisive on what I really wanted to do. You know, I felt like, hey, you know, I want to become a pro. I'd rather do it at an early age. At the same time, though, I had, you know, kind of these, this, this inclination to that. I'm like, you know what? I don't think college would be a bad route either, at least for a few years. You know, mm-hmm. I have my foot in the door somewhere or go to a school I know I can get better at. And so as like the, the recruiting process went down, I, I, you know, for me, I always had a great relationship with Peter Smith at USC since I was at a young age, I get six, seven years old. You know, I knew him for the longest time. And in a way, you know, he's always like a role model for me as a, as a young guy growing up, but also kind of like a second father in a sense. So I could talk to about basically anything, you know, on the road or whatever. And so when he started recruiting me, because he couldn't talk to me for a good year or two, a year and a half, two years, obviously because of the NBA roles, well, instead of recruiting me, I just knew that with the work and the results he had at USC, you know, recently, obviously producing Stevie Johnson, having that dynasty where they won four in a row, I knew that was the fit for me. So I knew that Peter was, you know, one thing, a great person. He was a great coach, but also the family environment he created there at USC was something that I was really attracted to. And I knew a few guys on the team as well. I had relationships with since the juniors, and I just felt like, that's the place I needed to be. It was close to home. You know, it was only 15, 20 minute drive, you know, up to 110. And so I just felt like, you know what, like with Peter Smith and Chris Quinto, I knew Chris Quinto was a phenomenal player at UCLA. And I knew he was very passionate. I knew Peter, you know, knew exactly what he was doing. And me having that, basically that personal professional relationship with him, you know, going through that recruiting process, it was, it was for me, I just felt like it was the right thing. You know, I felt like that was the right fit for me. Absolutely. So, I mean, the world wants to know what what is next for Deaton Bomber. <laughs> what uh, what's your game plan? Short term, long term? Like, what what do you think? Well, short term right now, I have um, a series of challenges I'm playing up here in North, uh, Northern California. I'm currently, uh, I qualified today for the Tiburon 100K, and I play tomorrow. I think second on um, against Felix Alguerrero-Masse, and then after that, I proceed to Stockton, another 100K challenger, then Fairfield after that, which is another 100K. And then I might take a week off. I'm not sure I might play the Vegas Challenger as well. Then I'll take a, a few weeks of training in Orlando uh, with my coaches down there, my trainers, and then do a few weeks uh, at the indoor tournaments in uh, Charlottesville and Knoxville indoor challengers. And then take a few weeks off, um, come back, watch the USC UCLA football game, which obviously is always, you know, <laughs> always fun to go and obviously participate and watch. And then um, from there, I'll just do off-season in Orlando and then, you know, look at a schedule of the first three or four months of the year and proceed from there. So are you planning on coaching again this year or was that more of a, a temporary thing last year? That was a, it was a temporary. At the time, you know, I, when I decided to take a break from tennis, I actually thought I was quitting tennis for the rest of my life. You know, I, at the moment, at the time I had some personal issues I was going through and some, some skeletons in the closet and I needed to take a break. And at the time I thought I wasn't going to play tennis again, but being at USC, being with Peter Smith and Chris Quinta and the whole team, I mean, the culture there obviously breeds, you know, you know, it breeds competitiveness and it brings, it obviously, you know, it, you know, brings the family unity as well. And for me being there, 
whatever, I kind of got inspired to go back out and play. Uh, on the way through the season, you know, watching the guys compete, you know, kind of wishing I was out there doing it myself. But also, I was very obviously, you know, blessed and honored to be, you know, just coaching the guys out there, you know, especially with, you know, USC. I mean, being out there be able to have kind of an obligation, you know, and also having the belief from Peter and Chris that I could, you know, coach those guys. So when I did that, I got the competitive spirit back and I told Peter and Chris in mid-April that I was going to go back out on tour, you know, and feel it out and kind of proceed, you know, see how the first few months go and go back out there and get another run. I knew I was young. I mean, I'm 21 years old. So it's like me taking seven, eight, nine months off. I didn't think was the biggest, you know, issue in the world. Was like when I come back, I'm going to be 21. I still have 10, hopefully 15 healthy years ahead of me to play this wonderful game. And so, um, yeah, so it was a September, it was a season thing. You know, it could have obviously, I expected in my mind, I was like, I'll do this for the rest of my life. But, you know, I knew I was young enough, and Peter was very supportive, and obviously he was influencing me in a way that he wanted me to get back out there and play because he knew of my potential. And, uh, yeah, so obviously I'm still in touch with the team. I still talk to Peter and Chris, you know, every week. You know, I still I talk to the guys every day as well. So, yeah, it's it's good. So it's, it's given you... Almost a, a new appreciation for the game, obviously uh, revived your competitive spirit and just the overall energy and approach to the game. What are you working on, maybe specifically for your game on the court, physically, mentally, um, on the conditioning side to get you back, you know, into that fighting mode to compete with on the tour week in and week out? I think the the on the tennis side of it. On the physical side, I would say being more consistent, just, you know, week in and week out. You know, this week, I've actually, I feel like I'm back in almost tip-top shape. I did a few weeks in Orlando. I actually did, I think, a month total of training down there in Orlando. Obviously, in those conditions during the summertime in Florida is never fun. Uh, but I got back into some pretty, you know, I feel like I'm very, I feel like I'm in shape. I feel like I'm at the top of my of my game, in a sense, on the physical side of it. And so, you know, right now, I would say, and with tennis side, I'd say just, being more consistent, you know, and being sharper and not making casual mistakes and just, you know, in a sense, trying to, you know, be a little bit more, trying to think of the word. And I mean, for me, just, I think the biggest thing is being consistent, you know, and, you know, not losing focus out there, which I don't lose focus. I just kind of lose focus on what I'm trying to accomplish out there, what I'm trying to implement. That's where I can kind of waver a little bit. But I think just, you know, which is like kind of to be expected. I was out of the game for almost a year, you know. So for me to, I kind of accepted to be have some, you know, drawbacks, you know, a few times in this, you know, early stages of my comeback. But, you know, as progressing forward, you know, just being more consistent. Like this week already, I've had two free setters and, you know, both those matches I did not play that well, you know, but I competed hard. I stuck around. I made some adjustments and, you know, I ended up coming out with a win. So. I think it's the biggest thing is being more consistent on kind of everything, on like a template of everything, just being more consistent. So, you know, maybe a little off the court, what's your favorite thing to do to like waste time when you have it at tournaments? Because there, I mean, every tennis fan knows there's so much downtime at these tournaments. What, I mean, what's your hobby that you do to pass time when you have it? I would say, honestly, a lot of it's listening to music. I'm a big kind of big music guy. I mean, obviously, I grew up with a dad who you know grew up in the 70s and 80s. So I have a lot of old classic rock, obviously, a lot of new contemporary, you know, obviously mixing a little EDM once in a while or, you know, new hip hop, something like that. So I'm a big music buff. So I listen to a lot of music, you know. Uh, funny enough, it's like uh, my nickname in, like, in the tennis community is, like, is Slim. And the reason why was a couple of years ago, I dyed my hair blonde. Uh, for about <laughs> six or eight months, and trust me, it was not a good look. But 
my my nickname at that point was you know Slim Slim Shady you know obviously for Eminem and so uh, my nickname became was obviously Slim for since then but I actually also like will write you know raps just kind of for fun you know like I'll just like you know I'm pretty good with words and I obviously had to kind of formulate stuff and so I just you know we'll put little raps together you know in my downtime and but that's gonna have to change in a few months because actually in January I'm starting online courses uh, through Southern New Hampshire University. So I want to get my degree. So after times, I do want to have options, whether it's to go into college coaching, which most colleges, you know, kind of expect or demand, a, you know, a degree of some sort, you know, to coach and obviously guide, you know, young men and women through the student athlete life. So, or if I want to go into something else, you know, whether it's, you know, going into administration for a school or administration through, you know, an organization like a U.S. Air, you know, whatever the case may be, um, I'm obviously going to need a degree. So I'm going to start that in January. So my, my downtime will be, uh, will be a lot busier in a sense i'll have to be balancing out obviously you know my on the court stuff and prehab matches rehab and obviously classes as well but i would say i'm i'm still always in a mix of just listen to music or you know you facetime a few guys you know your friends back home or something like that but i actually kind of live a very boring off the court lifestyle it's just very simple it's very non-dramatic and it's easy <laughs> all i know is uh correct fans are going to be looking for the D- Deaton version of Slim Shady, a picture of that coming soon. <laughs> Honestly, type in Deaton bomb in 2013. I'm sure there's going to be a blonde, a blonde hair picture of me somewhere. And trust me, it's not pretty, but hey, you know what? I went through a phase and I'm glad I went through it. So We've all got those pictures somewhere down the line. <laughs> oh my, yeah. Always, We've all been uh, through those phases. Mistakes of our youth, that's for sure. <laughs> oh yeah, and then also you know maybe a freestyle rap here coming soon in the next couple. We'll hype that on social media. Don't worry. Yeah, like, m- m- maybe a, maybe a mixtape or an EP or something like that. I'll have to talk to my label and see what uh, see what you know what's in store. What's if what's possible. A, yeah, if you need an agent, I'm down for a career change. I mean, I'm down to in that scene. <laughs> you know what? As long, hey, as long as you get like a decent producer to like back the whole thing, I'm down. <laughs> All right, well, we will uh, – I don't want to take too much of your time here. We'll move over to the rapid-fire segment, which is going to be five to ten questions in rapid succession, and uh, you're going to provide us with one-word answers here. So you ready to rock? Let's do it. Let's try. All righty. Uh, who's your favorite tennis player? Novak Djokovic. Favorite video game? I don't play video games. If you're forced to give up a stroke in tennis, what would it be? Uh, forehand. Favorite thing to do in your spare time, non-tennis related? Uh, vibing the music. Favorite snack on the court? Uh, Cliff Bar. Favorite meal off the court? Let's say In-N-Out Burger. Best tennis court surface? Play. Most entertaining player on the tour right now? Tommy Paul. I was going to say you could say yourself. Favorite TV show? <laughs> uh, I would go with I would say um, Game of Thrones. Favorite song or artist right now? Tygo. Favorite sports star, non-tennis related? Michael Phelps. Finish the sentence. My favorite thing about a fresh can of tennis balls is? Smell. Awesome. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Deaton, for coming on. Thank you. I appreciate it. Sounds good. We'll get some sleep. Go tear it up tomorrow, and uh, we'll talk soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Dalton. All right, dude. Bye. All right. Bye.
Thanks for listening to my conversation with Deaton Crack fans. Uh, he really gave us an interesting perspective on his upbringing and how he was introduced to the game, the mental and physical grind of the sport of tennis, and his relationship with legendary USC coach Smith, and also his recent success on the Futures Tour. Best of luck to Deaton out on the, the Futures Tour, and we know he's going to continue grinding out there. Uh, so thanks again, Deaton, for coming on. But next time, we have Ohio State freshman John McNally, Blue Chip senior Axel Neve, and Blue Chip junior Jensen Brooksby. So we've got a lot coming on the way for you all. And as always, we appreciate all the support. Go subscribe to the Cracked Interviews podcast if you haven't already. Go check out the Great Shop podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and go like the Facebook page. And please, please don't forget to rate and review our podcast at iTunes. And uh, just recently, we are now on Stitcher Radio, Google Play, and Player.fm. So check out those, especially for those Android users out there. Go subscribe on those platforms, and we will see you next time with Ohio State freshman John McNally. Hello, every day it is a praise, a pleasure.